The global economy is defined by an invention everyone uses daily, almost without thinking about it. A technology integral not only to our everyday lives, but to the military might and geopolitical strategy. A technology that advances so quickly that there's even a famous rule to describe the pace of progress, Moore's Law. That technology is of course the microchip, and understanding both its history and its current importance to global economy is vital to understanding the world of tomorrow. How did Taiwan become the global epicenter of chip manufacturing? And what does the escalating tension between China and Taiwan mean for our global future? I'm Clara Bertrand, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast for sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Brought to you by Picti Group. In this episode, Picti's head of communications and branding, Hubertus Kulps, meets Professor Chris Miller, historian at Tufts and author of the award-winning new book, Chip War. Stay with us and discover what the fight for the world's most critical technology means for you. Chris, welcome. Thanks a lot for making the trip over from from Boston. Chris is a professor at at Tufts. He's actually a professor for history uh, and an expert on Russia. How does it happen that an expert on Russia writes uh, a book on microchips, on semiconductors? Well, I started actually not planning to write a book about chips. I wanted to understand the evolution of technology. And one of the key drivers of technological shifts is, is military technology, since militaries spend vast sums trying to produce the most advanced systems. And during the Cold War, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were both able to produce some of the key technologies of the early Cold War period. So think of atomic weapons or long-range missile systems, space programs. But by the end of the Cold War, a vast gap had opened up in technological capabilities. And that seemed to me like a puzzle. Why was it that the Soviets could produce the key technologies in the early Cold War, but couldn't by the end? And it was a particular puzzle because a lot of the ingredients that you might think would be necessary, smart scientists, lots of capital investment, were present in the Soviet Union. And so I started digging into the evolution of these military systems and came to realize that Actually, the the key differentiating factor wasn't any individual missile or plane. It was the application of computing power to all types of defense systems. And as I was doing that research, it actually became clear that it wasn't just the military that had been transformed by computing power. It was our entire society. And, And I'd, of course, been aware of computer chips before I started writing, but I'd never really come to terms with how critical they were in defining not just military power, but the entire modern economy. And, and that set me on to semiconductors as a topic which we all knew existed, but we'd never really fully thought through their implications. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, I, when I was preparing for this, I also thought, gosh, semiconductor, I probably should first read what is even a semiconductor <laughs> and what are the different types that exist. And quite quickly, you get lost because there's a lot, but maybe you can explain to our audience just in general, what is a chip? What is a semiconductor? So a chip is a piece of silicon, in most cases, often the size of your fingernail. Uh, And on that uh, piece of silicon are carved thousands, millions, often billions of tiny circuits. And the circuits are turned on and off by a switch uh, called a transistor. When the switch is on, the circuit's completed, and that produces a one. When the switch is off, the circuit's interrupted, that produces a zero. And all of the ones and zeros of digital computing, all software, uh, all data storage, are just billions and billions of ones and zeros, which are nothing more than circuits on these tiny chips. That's super fascinating, and I think what you what you wrote in your book is that originally the first chip had, I think, four of these transistors, and today there are... If you go to an Apple store and buy a new iPhone, just the primary chip will have 15 billion 
transistors on it. So from four to 15 billion has been the the rate of technological progress. And it's it's a rate that's unparalleled in any other sector of the economy. On, on the size of my fingernail. That's right. And so each each one of those transistors in your phone, for example, is smaller than the size of a coronavirus. They're measured in nanometers, billionths of a meter. That's fascinating. So let's start with the chip industry. And um, I understand, generally speaking, there's there are three parts of that industry. And I, I saw earlier uh, the head of our robotics team is here, so he can correct me later on if I'm wrong, but I didn't ask. But there's an, in, in a way, there's three parts. There's chip design. They are the people who make the tools that you need to make chips. And then there's the people who industrialize chip production. So three big parts of that industry. Design today is mainly software. The tooling is very, very complicated. And we can spend a little bit more time on that because there's a few major players there and very, very few people actually who can do this well. And then in the end, there's one major player who, is, who makes the most complex chips today in terms of industrial production. And maybe you can walk us through kind of who they are and, and give us a rough overview, and then we can dive a little bit deeper into each of those. Well, if you start with the, the companies that make the tools that make chips. You know, first off, uh, I think to, to set these tools in context, these are the most precise and complex tools that have ever been made. So they're the tools that are capable of moving materials on silicon at almost the atomic level. So there's certain tools that are capable of laying down thin films of materials, just a couple of atoms thick. Others can etch small canyons of, uh, of material into the silicon, a couple of atoms wide. And then there's a, a set of tools called lithography tools, which project patterns onto silicon that carve the billions of transistors onto the chip in your smartphone, uh, for example. And so each one of these process steps uh, has just one or two companies capable of producing the most advanced tools. So if you're looking at the most advanced lithography tools, there's one company, ASML in the Netherlands, that produces 100% of the most advanced lithography tools. No one else in the world has any production of these tools. And, and the reason that there's such concentration is because these tools are just mind-bogglingly complex. They involve just this one type of lithography tool. involves the flattest mirrors humans have ever made, one of the most powerful lasers ever deployed in a commercial device, and an explosion happening inside the machine constantly at 40 times hotter than the surface of the sun. So this is engineering that is literally unparalleled in any other sector uh, of the economy. And that, that's just in a lithography machine. When it comes to the deposition machines that deposit thin films, there's companies like Applied Materials in California that have a really critical role. And then the etching of shapes into the uh, silicon is done by companies like uh, Lamb Research, also in California. And so if you zoom out and look at the market for the tools that make chips, there's really five companies ASML in Netherlands, three in the U.S., and then one in Japan, Tokyo Electron, that play uh, that have the predominant share in this segment um, of the industry. How did it end up that Taiwan played such an important role? I mean, I think you said as, you know they're they're particularly good, but in the but in the early days, in the in the fifties and, and early sixties, the U.S. had the clear lead. I mean, these these came from from Texas Instruments. They were very early in the in that game, uh, along with a few others. And, and Taiwan was really far behind and almost had nothing. So how did it happen that they uh, got, you know, through Morris Chang, uh, that lead? You know, I think there, there are a couple of factors. One is that the number of players has just shrunk. So today there are only three firms that are anywhere close to producing cutting-edge processor chips. There's TSMC in the lead, Samsung of South Korea behind them, and then Intel of the U.S., about two generations behind. And Samsung and Intel still have that model that they both design 
and produce. And that's, I think, what analysts say is, is, is in, in the end, the difficulty for them. That's right. And Intel right now is trying to switch to the TSMC model of producing for external customers, but it's a hard switch to, to undertake. But, but these are the only three companies that are anywhere close. So there's, there's no new entrance in this business, uh, nor is there any risk of new entrants. $30 billion a year. Yeah, good luck. Good luck raising that. Um, so what that means is that there's only three companies that have to compete for technology. And so in, in some ways, the story is that TSMC has been very successful. In some ways, the story is that, well, there are only three firms. Only one of them is based in the U.S. And so if it was a perfectly even odds, the U.S. would have a one in three chance of having the leading company. Mm. Now, I, I think there's a couple other factors that are relevant. One is that in the U.S., there's been a focus on design because design is super high margin but not very capital intensive. And so it's been a great business model for companies in the design space. Unlike of, of all the chip revenue, I think, worldwide, you're right. I think more than a third goes to the U.S. and manufacturing is only about 18% or something. Like that. That's right. So companies like Qualcomm, AMD, NVIDIA, they have basically no capital expenditure, mm. but their margins are as high, if not higher, than TSMC's. So financially, it's been very logical for the U.S. to focus on chip design. But as the industry's concentrated and concentrated on one island off the coast of China, uh, there's been growing concerns about whether that concentration yeah. is, is a good idea. And, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. But I think, you know, the, and this is maybe leading to the, to the second part of the, of the conversation, talking a little bit more uh, about Morris Chang, who founded DSMC, but uh, actually, you know, moved from China, which is very ironic, was born in China, moved mm -hmm. from China to the US, and, and worked at Texas Instruments until he, I think, was asked to, to leave or more decided to leave in his 50s. Maybe you can tell that story. Well, I actually had the pleasure of seeing him in person in Taiwan uh, several weeks ago. I, in my view, he's one of the most underestimated business people of, of recent times. We, we've all heard of Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates, but it's Morris Chang who produced the chips on which all of these tech companies um, depend. As you say, he was born in, in China. His uh, parents were officials, or his father was an official in the nationalist government. And so when the communists took power, he had to flee and was a refugee uh, and won admission to Harvard uh, in 1950 and was the only Chinese student in his class at the time uh, and started studying English literature. And his uncle told him to get a, get a real degree. And so, <laughs> and so he transferred to MIT uh, and started studying physics and engineering. Uh, at a time when electrical engineering was, was sort of the hot subject, everyone knew that there was a lot happening in early computers, the size of rooms at the time. Uh, and he was hired by Texas Instruments and moved to Dallas, Texas in the late 50s, uh, just at the time when the first chips were being invented. And he spent uh, three decades at TI, and he was known for his ability to make the manufacturing assembly lines uh, work efficiently. He, he was thought to have had a sort of sixth sense as to what tweak in the manufacturing process would make things uh, work better. And as a result, he moved very rapidly up the ranks at TI and was second in line uh, to become CEO before he was passed over in what in hindsight was a horrific business error. And when he was in his final years at TI, he was already thinking about, did it still make sense to manufacture and design under the same roof? Or was it better to split the two out? And when he, was, uh, when he decided to leave TI, uh, he was thinking about founding a new company based on this new business model. I think he was, I think he was also courted a bit by the Taiwanese government, wasn't he, to come back and see if he could do something there? Th that's right, yeah. So when he was at TI, he helped TI open their first assembly facilities in Taiwan. And like a number of other electronics companies at the time, TI had pretty low-value uh, assembly facilities where electronics were put together. And so we'd gotten to know a couple of the key economic policy-making officials in Taiwan uh, who came to respect him and his judgment. 
and uh, they wanted to move Taiwan up the value chain from assembly to chip making and gave him something close to a blank check to start a new company in Taiwan. And so TSMC was founded in 1987. And he was, I think, 52 or 53, right? When most of us think, starting to think about, okay, what am I going to do <laughs> when I retire? He's now in his 90s. That's right. right. That's right. Um, you've, you've met him and you've talked to him and you've studied him a little bit in a little bit more detail. What lesson do you think entrepreneurs uh, can learn from him? Well, I think the first thing that that makes him unique in comparison to many of the, the tech entrepreneurs we know today is that he saw his job first and foremost as manufacturing. Because in the early days, the chip industry was fundamentally a manufacturing enterprise, and, and in many ways, it still is. Uh, and so in his view, manufacturing and tech were actually the exact same spheres. And I think if you look at why TSMC has done so well, some of that ethos is still very much... Uh, with the firm. It's a firm of engineers, uh, run by engineers, designed around engineers, and that commitment to engineering and manufacturing has been there from day one. The second is that he realized the importance of scale. You know, one of the most interesting interviews I did, of course, my book was with a, an academic who'd started her career in, in universities and then moved to industry. And she said, you know, actually, academia is really easy because you can win a prize doing something once in a lab. Whereas in industry, you do something a billion times to make any money. And, and Morris Chang understood the, the economies of scale better than anyone. Uh, and he realized that in order to get efficiencies, you needed to scale. And so that, that was the second key conclusion. And the third was the business model innovation. When he started TSMC, there were no companies looking for manufacturing services. He hypothesized that the market would be there if he built a company that was only manufactured chips. And it took a long time to convince uh, customers that they could survive without their own in-house manufacturing. Let's move from there to uh, to the geopolitical implications, and I think really the title of your book being being chip war. And I think what you alluded to at the very beginning that uh, you know there, there's this race in a way between well initially between when you were looking at it between Russia and the West, uh, but increasingly I think when you look at it today it's uh, it's China and the West, and I think uh, the West still dominates. But uh, talk us through what's happening there and to what degree. China is catching up and what they've done? Well, today China remains quite far behind uh, when it comes to semiconductors. China spends as much money importing chips each year as it spends importing oil. And it does so because many types of chips can't be produced in China. Um, most smartphone chips, most PC chips, most data center chips, uh, China imports because they're more efficiently produced in Taiwan or in Korea. Um, now, China's been investing very heavily. Uh, since 2014, when Xi Jinping identified chips as a priority, and part of the Made in China 2025 policy was actually focused on semiconductors. And there's been some progress, but there's been less progress than you might have expected. Uh, and the reality is that for most types of chips, uh, China remains dependent on imports. China's manufacturing is three or so generations behind Taiwan and has been three generations behind Taiwan for the last decade. So. Taiwan's improved, China's improved, but the gap has remained the mm -hmm. same. And when it comes to the tools that make chips, China's almost exclusively dependent on imports today. Uh, so across the value chain, China accounts for 6 to 8% of the industry's revenue, smaller than Taiwan, smaller than Korea, smaller than Japan, smaller than the Netherlands, uh, and certainly smaller than the United States. Um, but because of the role of chips in AI in particular, governments are focused on access to the most advanced chips and cutting off their rivals from getting access, uh, partly for commercial reasons, but more importantly for the military and intelligence ramifications. And if you, you know, think of the ways that AI is going to transform 
the way you compute, it's going to have even more dramatic ramifications for the ways that intelligence agencies and militaries compute. And that's, that's why we've seen a lot more political interference mm-hmm. in chip supply chains in recent years. Can you get more specific on that interference? I think I, it started really in earnest. Well, it, it existed before, but I think the, the first big you know, shot in a way was fired by the U.S. last October when they, when they started restricting certain, maybe you can explain you know, what they started restricting. So last October, the U.S. Uh, issued new export controls that had two main prongs. The first was to restrict the transfer into China of the chips that are used to train AI systems. So we mentioned NVIDIA, uh, their most advanced chips can no longer be sent to China. Uh, but the, isn't, that a, isn't that potentially also a risk for them from an investment point of view? But there's enough to do with AI arrest in the rest of the world. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so certainly it, it, NVIDIA sold off the day those controls were announced. Now they can still sell less advanced chips to China. And... Chinese firms are a long way away from designing and producing competitive chips to NVIDIA. And the second part of the controls that the U.S. announced are designed to make it easier for companies like NVIDIA to defend their turf because the U.S. is also restricting the transfer of chip-making tools into China. And so today, China's most advanced chip-making facilities are full of U.S., Japanese, and Dutch tools. And so now, because of agreement among these three companies, these three countries, uh, it's illegal for China to access the most advanced tools as well. So they can't get the most advanced AI chips, nor can they get the tools you need to produce the most advanced chips. Okay. Now, um, I guess the, in, in the end, the, the elephant in the room question is what happens if China invades Taiwan? And uh, I guess that's also why we're seeing a trend and, and lots of you know, big government subsidies in, in the US, in Japan, and also in Europe. You know, the CHIP Act is the one that we know from the US in terms of nearshoring or onshoring production capabilities, is that ever going to suffice? Uh, should that happen? And, and if it would happen, you know, what would be the consequences for the economy? Well, so if it happens, it'd be catastrophic. It's not just smartphones, although we would struggle to produce any smartphones without TSMC. It's not just PCs, even though a third to half of PC processors are made in Taiwan. Not just data centers, it's telecoms infrastructure. A cell phone tower is basically a a metal pole with a bunch of semiconductors on top, many of which are made in Taiwan. But more than that, it's cars. So if a typical new car has a thousand chips, let's say 20% of those are made in Taiwan. Yeah, I heard that during the pandemic when there were already restrictions in terms of, uh, well, it was just difficult to produce in Taiwan, that uh, car manufacturers were buying washing machines. I don't know if, you, if this is true or not. Yep. And, and taking the chips out to put them in the cars is yep. true. That's right. That's right. Mm. Yeah. And, and Car manufacturers over the past several years uh, suffered several hundred billion dollars in lost sales. So huge, huge financial costs. And what's striking about the chip shortages of the pandemic is that actually chip making increased globally. So the number of chips produced increased by 8% in 2020 and by double digit rates in 2021. It's just that demand grew faster. So the chip shortage was actually a demand surge rather than a supply problem. And so you mentioned that a third of new processing power each year comes from Taiwan. If that were to disappear, Good luck making not just a smartphone or a PC, but a car, an airplane, or even dishwashers, which don't require sophisticated chips, but they require a lot of chips. I, I think the most the most frightening thing that I heard from the last several years is that ASML and applied materials, the, the companies that make the tools that make chips, both reported in 2022 they were struggling to meet their production targets because they couldn't get a enough access to semiconductors. Mm. So it was a cyclical. You would think that... China would have no interest at all in invading Taiwan because in the end they would be catastrophically impacting the world economy, which is which they're a very, very big part of. So 
do you think that the what, where do you see the risk of this happening and do you think that is a deterrent well i i hope it's a deterrent but i think we shouldn't be overconfident in it um for seeing the opposite well that's right that's right yeah so the 2022 gave us a good example of economically interconnected countries finding themselves on the opposite side of geopolitical disputes in china itself it's clear policy making has turned towards a more security focused direction as opposed to the focus on economic growth that we had under Deng Xiaoping or Hu Jintao but i think more important than the specifics are that history provides lots of examples of economically integrated countries that end up at war i mean i just think back to world war 1 britain and germany were major trade and investment partners until they were at war and then it was just weeks from the point world war 1 started until britain was implementing a blockade designed to cut food imports into germany and reduce civilian calorie consumption. That was it was a weeks long process from economically interconnected to starvation blockades and and so I I worry that history doesn't suggest we should be too optimistic. And I think you've said should it happen then it's not like the Chinese will be able to take over TSMC you think they won't be able to produce full stop. That's that's right because TSMC only functions thanks to imports of materials from Japan, the US and Europe, uh spare parts, still machines come from abroad. and the energy alone required to operate the machines is extraordinary. So Taiwan has around 2 weeks of liquefied natural gas reserves on the island. That's the first thing to get turned off if war does come. Okay. That's um a bit scary prospects uh and uh and and I think you uh, we didn't cover this and I asked it but I don't think we got to it. If that happens, will how long will it take with all these, you know, chip acts to actually get production capabilities up elsewhere that might be able to compensate or will they never be able to compensate? I think at the current level of spending they're not going to compensate. They're going to make a difference on the margin, but we're still going to be quite dependent on chips made in Taiwan in 5 years time. So in 5 years time, no way that that we've no caught way. up uh, with with US and Germany etc etc. Okay. Chris, thank you so very much. This episode of Founding Conversations shared Professor Chris Miller and was presented by Hubertus Kultz. The show is a collaboration between Bigte, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and the How to Academy, London's leading premier forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.